I want to call your attention now to the portion from which we read a few moments ago, which is Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we want to look at one verse here in particular, and that is verse 7. John the Apostle, by inspiration, writes these words concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. May the Lord bless the reading of this portion of his word to our hearts. For the past week, events in Israel have captured the attention of the world. All eyes have been focused upon that conflict And perhaps you have had friends in the past week who have asked you, as I have, are we living near the end? Does this mean that we're at the end of the world? The truth is, only God knows for sure. I certainly don't, and frankly, I don't have much confidence in those who think that they know, because over many generations, such ones who think they know what's going on uh, prophetically have been proven wrong again and again. Perhaps it is good in a practical way for every generation to think that they are the last. That should keep us diligent about our souls and about doing the will of the Lord presently. But I'm afraid that there are many who are simply in a carnal way curious about future events and who neglect the greater responsibility of present duties and obligations to God. There's always a great deal of sensational speculation All I can say is this, I have no doubt that there is significance to the events of the past week in Israel. Exactly what that significance is in God's whole scheme of things, I do not know. But I want to focus upon what is more clear in the word of God for us 
today. And that is what our text tells us about. There is a future event that should occupy our attention and grab our interest. And it is the second coming of Christ. Again, our text says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This great event, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is what the New Testament consistently points us to. As far as other events are concerned, we are not so clear on those. And there's varying opinions. But on this matter, everyone ought to be crystal clear. And there ought to be no disagreement about it. This is what the New Testament over and over again points us to and bids us to anticipate the coming of Christ. It is, in a way, similar to the Old Testament in that all throughout the Old Testament, people were pointed to, or pointed forward to what? The coming of Christ. His first coming. Well, in the New Testament, we see His first coming. And then we see His return into heaven and then we are pointed to his second coming. In fact, many of the Old Testament prophecies did not clearly distinguish between his first and second comings. They speak of it all as one event. The New Testament makes it more clear that he comes twice. He comes the first time in humiliation. As a servant, he comes the second time in glory as the king. He came the first time as the lamb of God. He comes the second time as the lion of Judah. He came the first time inaugurating his kingdom in the hearts of his redeemed ones. He comes the second time consummating his kingdom over all creation. And both his first coming and his second coming are the defining moments of human history and of all creation. They are amazing stunning, history-defining events. Our text tells of his second coming. It tells of its certainty and its universal significance and its effects upon two groups of humanity. And that's the simple outline that I want to follow here today and I'm following that simple outline as was set forth 
many years ago in a sermon by Edward Payson. Let's consider then, first of all, the certainty of Christ's second coming. The verse begins saying, Behold, he cometh. Behold, he cometh with clouds. John announces this event, and he announces it with, with fervency and with zeal. You cannot miss the, the sense of importance and weightiness to this matter. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Look, John says, he's coming. There's a sense of urgency. Yes, a sense of imminence that it is not only certain to occur, but it is soon to occur. And comparing time to eternity, whenever Christ comes, it will be soon. This is the central event of the future. Some people have their prophetic calendar and they have all these different events and dates and they have them all in a certain order and so on. I believe that the New Testament is more clear than that. That there is one grand, central, momentous event that awaits the earth in God's timing and on God's calendar. And that great event is this. The coming of Christ in the clouds from heaven to earth once again. There's no dispute about this basic foundational truth. It is spoken of in many places. And if you'll allow me, I'll just turn and read a few of them. This is just a few. Jesus himself spoke of it in the Gospel of Matthew in these words, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Later on, to the disciples in the upper room, Jesus said these familiar words. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The first chapter of the book of Acts tells us of Christ's ascending back into heaven and the promise that the angels gave to the disciples who saw him taken up into the clouds include these. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He went up into the clouds. It says a cloud received him out of their sight. And it's interesting that Revelation 1-7 likewise mentions clouds. As he went, so he shall return. Paul writes to the Thessalonians about the second coming of Christ. These comforting words. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. There's the mention of the clouds again. To meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. The letter to the Hebrews mentions the coming of Christ more than once. It says that unto those that look for Christ, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The first time he came, he came as a sacrifice for sin. He came as our sin bearer. When he comes the second time, it will be without sin, without any redemption, without any sin bearing. He will come to take us to himself in heavenly glory. That is, all who believe on him. And again in Hebrews, for yet a little while and he that shall come will come. There's no doubt about it. It's a certain thing. I said there's no dispute about the second coming of Christ. Well, shame on those who say that it all occurred in 70 A.D. They remind me of those of whom Paul wrote. He describes them having erred concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is past already. No, the second coming of Christ did not occur in A.D. 70. It is yet to come. It is the great end of this world. It is when the final resurrection will take place as we read there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Why would anyone deny the resurrection? The resurrection of the body of believers at the last day and and the resurrection of the body of those who were lost to enter into eternal suffering. Why would anyone deny it? Well, Matthew Poole offers this answer, that there shall be no resurrection is a very pleasing doctrine to men that have lived sensual lives. Those whose lives have been nothing but eating and drinking do very unwillingly think of dying, but seeing they cannot avoid that, they would gladly there should be no resurrection. End quote. 
Christ is coming. Behold, he cometh with clouds. It's a certainty. Do you believe it? I must believe it. His second coming is as certain as his first coming. Both were promised in the Old Testament. And as I said earlier, they were viewed sometimes as one event, or at least indistinguishable. If you believe in the first coming of Christ, you must believe in the second coming of Christ also. It's a certainty. But next, let's consider the universal significance of Christ's second coming. It says, again, here in our text, Every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. His coming will not be, in a way, like his first coming. In his first coming, he devoted his attention and spent his life and his ministry in Palestine. But when he comes the second time, every eye will see him. None will be absent. None will fail to be uh, implicated. There are implications for everyone on earth in the second coming of Christ. It is an appointment that every child of Adam must keep without exception. Even those who have died and whose corpses have laid in the grave for maybe thousands of years will in some way witness this event. They will be raised up. Jesus spoke of the resurrection of life and the resurrection unto damnation also. Later on in the book of Revelation, we read that those who were buried at sea, whose bodies no one knows where they are, will be raised up also at the last day. There are implications for everyone in the second coming of Christ. It has implications for you, my friend, and for me. And it's interesting that the Jews who were particularly responsible for his crucifixion are mentioned here. They which pierced him. They will be eyewitnesses of his second coming. Every eye. Every eye. Your eyes, my eyes. Today we read of this event, but when he comes, we will see it. Our eyes behold words printed on a page, but on that day we will see him when he comes. 
you may not want to see Christ. You may shut your eyes ever so tightly to the light of the gospel now. But when he comes again, your eyes will be wide open to behold him. Look, behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him. And not only is there this universal significance and universal participation, we might say, as every eye sees him as he comes, and when he comes. But this verse tells us also that everyone will be deeply affected by his coming. His coming will affect all of humanity and his coming will be like a divide to divide one group of humanity from another group. And there's no third group here. It's all one or the other. And so let's consider the effects of Christ's second coming upon the two groups that are mentioned here. First of all, it says, All kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Many, and many from all the nations or tribes or kindreds of the earth will be sad at his coming. They will mourn. They will wail, it says, which means to to cry and to lament. And and it has this, this very intense idea about it. Jesus himself spoke of this in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the same thing that our text tells us here. But why would multitudes of people wail at his coming? Why should his coming be such a source of grief and trouble to them? Why should they dread the sight of the Son of God coming in the clouds? Well, the little phrase here tells us all we need to know. All the kindreds of the earth shall wail... Because of him. There is something intrinsically about Jesus himself that is troubling to these who are described here. It's because of who he is and what his coming means to them that they wail and cry. It is because he comes as a judge to judge them for their sins. 
We read of this judgment in the sermon that Paul preached in Acts chapter 17 when he says that God has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Who is that man? That's Jesus himself, the God-man, the judge. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Among other things, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the guarantee that Christ will come again as judge over all the earth. When he comes, sins will be remembered. All of a person's sins will flash before the mind's eye. And those who are not prepared to see him, those who do not know him as their Savior and Lord, will be smitten at the sight of him. They will go into something akin to spiritual shock. They will be filled with guilt as the glory of Christ exposes the darkness of their own heart and life. They will be smitten with shame and fear and dread, a sense of unending doom, despair. A sense of final and utter ruin, irreversible. It will be as if they say, the judge has come. And we're not prepared for him. Our party is over. We're in trouble. We're ruined. (coughs) This sense of desperation is described later on in Revelation chapter 6 in these words, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? The sinner's worst fears will be realized on that day. The sinner's worst fears will come to pass. They'll say, we never thought this would really happen. We never thought it would happen to us. But the judge has come and he's going to cast us into the lake of fire forever because of our sins against him. And we have no hope and we have no escape. There will be wailing when Christ comes on the part of multitudes on this earth from every nation because 
His coming proves that their unbelief was absolute folly. Before His coming, their boasting in the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, they are scoffing and continuing on in their sins and lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Why, people have been talking about the coming of Christ for 2,000 years. Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But when he comes again, their unbelief will be exposed for what it is, utter foolishness. And they will no longer deny his first or his second coming. They will wail because they've been proven guilty and they've been proven wrong. And they will wail because they have rejected this Christ and rejected him until it's too late. One commentator, Mr. Ramsey, says, Christ rejected, an offer of salvation neglected, a day of grace wasted. This is the thing that will give the lost sinner his keenest anguish and wring from him at the last a bitterer wail than devils ever uttered. End quote. Try to imagine the crying and the wailing that must have occurred at the flood. What it must have sounded like. Or imagine the wailing that occurred at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But that is small in comparison to the wailing that will be heard when Christ comes again. It will be a cry such as this earth has never heard. I can't imagine the deafening sound of those who wail because of him at his coming. When all those who are in their sins will cry and moan, wailing like that of hell itself. The second coming of Christ will cause wailing, great wailing. It will be the end for many of all laughter, of all pleasant conversation, enjoyable music, songbirds flying through the breeze, the end of all 
shouting for joy, the end of all reveling in the pleasures of sin, all of those happy sounds will give way to this sickening sound of mourning and sorrow, misery, total grief and despair. Lost friend, this will be you. Make no mistake about it, this will be you if you die in your sins without Christ. His second coming will be a dreadful, dreadful day. But our text goes on to say that his coming will have a different effect for others. And it's in these closing words of verse 7 where John, by inspiration, says, Even so, Amen. The thought of the second coming of Christ brought great joy, peace, comfort to the Apostle John as he wrote these words. He uses both a Greek and a Hebrew word here to express affirmation, agreement, happiness, and contentment with the thought of the coming of Christ. Even so, amen. Yes, let it be. May it be so, he says. And this, beloved, is what every true believer in Christ will say and will experience on that day. There will be great joy, peace. Let it come. Let him come. Yes. And why would these people say such a thing? Well, it's for the same reason. It's because of him. It's because of Christ. It's because of what his coming means for them. His coming will be faith brought to sight. We'll say that's what we've been looking for. That's what we've been waiting for. That's what we've been longing for. Believers are described in the book of Hebrews as those who look for him. That is, we, we eagerly Anticipate his coming. We are looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God. We are earnestly desiring it. We're looking forward to it. In the words of 2 Timothy, we love his appearing. It is to us a blessed hope. We are waiting for God's Son from heaven. That's, those are the terms of 1 Timothy 1, or 1 Thessalonians 1. 
And the thought of it brings comfort to our hearts even now. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 concludes. His coming will be the fruition of faith. That which has been invisible to our physical eyes will be visible. That which is immaterial to us will suddenly be material. We shall see him as he is, John assures us. We will rejoice and say, even so, amen, because his coming will usher us into the final state of glory. All of the trouble and difficulty and pain and suffering of this life will be over. And we will be in perfect joy and bliss and in glory, glorified with a body that is like Christ's glorified body. His coming will be the resolution of all things. There is so much that is confusing to us. And it's like we see these loose ends all hanging in, in God's providence from our perspective. When Christ comes, all the loose ends will come together. Everything will make sense. All of the difficulties that, that we've had will be resolved And for those who have died already in Christ, he will bring their spirits with him when he comes. And those graves will be opened, those bodies will be raised up, reunited to those spirits in a glorified condition to be with Christ forevermore. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Those that are in Christ who are alive when he comes, their bodies will also be changed so that both the dead and the living in one great group will be glorified with Christ. Yes, even so. Amen. Yes, let it be. And all the suffering, I say, for Christ in this life will be more than repaid on that day. We're promised that in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so Christian friend, believer in Christ, this is you. The second coming of Christ will be the happiest day of your life and it will be a day that will never end oh let it be let him come oh the joy of that day oh the joy of beholding Christ seeing him with our eyes coming in the clouds Now, let's just make a few observations here. 
isn't it striking that one and the same event should bring such very different responses from people? The single event of the second coming of Christ will evoke this very sharp contrast in the two groups of people, unbelievers and believers. To unbelievers, it's a source of perfect misery and grief and unspeakable horror. To believers, the same event, the sight of Christ and his coming, is a source of perfect joy, peace, Relief. At last he has come. Perhaps we see just a small illustration of that in courtroom scenes. And maybe you've seen some in videos and so on, or maybe you've been on a jury and seen this. As the verdict is read, One side of the courtroom moans, cries, and is stricken. And the other side of the courtroom breathes a sigh of relief. And they express their joy just as much as the other side expresses their desperation. And it will be that and much more. When Christ comes at the last day, the same event consider then the vanity and emptiness of all sinful pleasures, consider the futility of opposing Christ and opposing God and His will. Consider the evil of rejecting Christ. We must weigh every action and every thought against that day. And we will quickly see that all that earth has to offer is nothing. It is fading away. And inasmuch as it is against God, it will doom souls on that day. As the hymn writer says, we should live rather for the solid joys And lasting treasure, which Christ is, and which redemption is, the pleasures of God. You cannot have the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of God. You cannot dread his coming and rejoice in it's one or the other. We must look at the brightness of his glory. Until we are blind to all else and we see only him and live only for him.
But let me hasten to say this. Your present disposition toward Christ determines what effect his coming will have on you. If you don't want to be with him now, you will not want to see him on that day. Your attitude to Christ now determines whether you will be happy or sad when he comes again. And so the great question before us is this, what do you think of him now? What is your attitude to Christ today? And what do you think of his first coming? Do you see him in his first coming as the one who bore your sins on the cross and laid down his sinless life in a shameful death that you deserved? What is your relationship to him now? Do you believe on him? Do you love him? Do you enjoy walking with him? Do you long to see him? Or do you ignore him? Deny him? Avoid him? Do you want to keep your distance from him? Listen, you won't be able to keep a distance from him on that day. Your eyes will see him. And then he will say, depart from me. The present state of your soul tells you what you need to know about your eternal state. Or we can say it this way. The second coming of Christ will either solve all of your problems or else it will be the beginning of problems that you thought were unimaginable. I heard someone ask this question once. Do you have any problem that the second coming of Christ will not solve? If you're lost in your sins, the answer is yes. And you need to come to Christ and be saved and find forgiveness and find peace with God and follow Him. So I want to urge you to come to Christ now. He is coming again, it is certain. And it has implications for you. It has implications for us all. Do not let his second coming take you by surprise. Do not let his coming find you unprepared. And on the wrong side of his coming. But turn from your sin and come to Christ. If you're a believer today, I would encourage you to live more in view of the second coming of Christ. Live in eager anticipation. Think about it every day. Look forward to it. Love his appearing. Long for and look for his coming. We have not seen him. Yet we love him, but on that day we will both see him and love him. We will see him as he is, the one who laid down his life for us and rose again from the dead. 
And yes, we will look at him, we will see him, behold him, and gaze upon him with perfect delight. And we will never look away from him. So this is the question. When Jesus comes again, will you be saying, oh no, or oh yes? It will be one or the other. No, 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 or yes, yes, yes. If it will be no for you, my friend, today is a day of mercy Today is a day of grace. Come to Christ and come while you can.